So this morning, as I said, we are finishing our series of God in the headlines. We've had God in mental health. We've had God in uh, the new normal. We've had God and fake news. And then this morning we are finishing with probably the second most prevalent news story this year behind coronavirus, which is uh, Black Lives Matter. And I'm talking about the statement, Black Lives Matter, more than any political organisation, but I think it's really important for us to dig into as a church. On the 25th of May 2020, we saw the homicide of George Floyd that sparked off days, weeks, and even months of protests around the world. To take us back to that time, I want to read something that um, a priest in the Church of England, Dennis Adidi, said in the days afterwards. He said, For many, the world presented by this scene was foreign. Like newborns, they awoke and for the first time drew breath and felt the cold. Like the road to Damascus, the dazzling light recalibrating their eyes with the realisation that they couldn't see what was always in plain sight. It's in that time, I think, around the world, for many, eyes were opened to the reality of racism, systemic, institutional, conscious racism, unconscious racism, discrimination, discrimination against people because of their skin colour. And maybe many of us would be forgiven for thinking that racism was a thing of the past. It was going away. But of course, it wasn't. And for people of colour, they were all too aware of this. You know, Dennis continued, he said, This pain, watching a lynching, wasn't new, but was recurring. Azariah France Williams, a, another priest in the church, wrote, The death of George Floyd is the death of every black man. Agreeing with this, another uh, priest, a guy called Darius Withers, who is a really close friend of mine, he, he wrote this. When we saw the lifeless body of George Floyd, white knee on black neck, we saw ourselves. We saw our brothers, Stephen Lawrence, Michael Brown, Philando Castile and Eric Garner. We saw Colin Kaepernick blackballed as the black sheep of the NFL as he prophetically knee-led in protest of our suffering. In our peripheral vision, we noticed Raheem Sterling and Meghan Markle being blacklisted by the British media. Then we took a step back and we saw our ancestors chained, whipped and shipped in boxes like cheap tat. We saw our great cousins recast as strange fruit as their black bodies swung from southern trees. And in the same gaze, we saw Christ hanging from a Roman cross, uttering over and over, I can't breathe. These are ridiculously challenging uh, words, thoughts. And uh, so often, I think in church, we can make church a bit like you rated. What comes, you know, what goes on is very PG at best. But the reality is life sometimes is not that simple. And we have to dig into this. And with all the pain that has been expressed, through all the protests, we might be forgiven that we, you know, we might be forgiven in thinking that, you know, the world had changed. And, you know, this was the last time we'd see such scenes. But this week, again, we got another reminder that some lives don't matter as much as others, as footage emerged of US police shooting an unarmed black man called Jacob Blake seven times in the back from point-blank range in front of his three young children who were sat in the back of his car. So as we come to this real and difficult subject matter, 
let's take a moment just to pray in silence. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. So obviously this morning we don't have an ounce of the time that's required to kind of dig into this topic fully and cover it, but hopefully um, my prayer is just that there will be kind of a start for some of us in thinking about the theology behind this. For some of us it will just be a mark on our journey with this. And I want to do two sermons as such. Think of it like that. We've got the first sermon is God and Black Lives Matter. And then the second sermon is the church and Black Lives Matter. Uh, but before I say that, just to share a bit of my background with this, because I maybe address maybe the white elephant in the room. Obviously, I'm a white middle class man speaking on such a topic. Um, but as I said, I, I've given some, uh, I gave us some kind of updates from our church family this summer. Uh, and a bit of a personal update for me is that we, uh, that over the summer I've been finishing a master's and I've been writing a dissertation titled Corporate Repentance and the Church of England's Response to, race, uh, to, to Colonialism. Oh, I really should know the title by now. <laughs> um, it's something that I've been journeying with probably for four years or so. And this dissertation is kind of the culmination of those four years of study, uh, but also probably the beginning uh, of a kind of life's calling, kind of standing up and speaking out for racial injustice, particularly in the church. Um, and whilst as a middle-class white man, uh, I in no way can bring you a personal testimony of suffering racial oppression. Actually, I believe it's my Christian responsibility and the responsibility of all of us with power and privilege to truly engage with this matter and not just sit and listen. You know, this sermon and my dissertation is really just a part of my own journey of repentance, times where I've kind of discriminated against people consciously and unconsciously because of their skin colour. And I know that people of colour are fed up of white people just saying, oh, come and educate us. You know, we have to truly engage with this ourselves and uh, get involved in thinking and then doing uh, something in response. I hope that in what I say there is, a, is stuff for all of us to reflect on, but I recognise that as speaking as a white person, um, depending on your own cultural background, and we do have, whilst we're a white majority church, we do have many people from different backgrounds, uh, people will engage with this issue in such different ways, so let's have grace with that, hopefully. So with that in mind, Sermon 1, God and Black Lives Matter. Does God affirm the message that black lives matter? Does the gospel of Jesus, and remember that word gospel means good news, does that affirm that black lives matter? Well, at, that, at this point, I'm going to invite Joe to come and give us our reading. Joe's at the back there. Uh, our reading comes from, a, from Luke 4, verses 14 to 21.
Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, and was as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and rolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has, appoint- he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Just before I say anything else, I'd like to say that this is a list of readings that I thought of that might be appropriate for this topic, this subject matter, and this was the stuff that came off the top of my head in a few minutes. Uh, The reality is the Bible is full of conversations, of thinking about racial equality and justice. And even if you're at home and that's too small for your screens, hopefully you get the point. This is a big thing in Scripture. At the start of his ministry, Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he sets out the gospel, the good news that he is bringing. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Black lives matter. The lives of the oppressed matter to God. Amen? Amen. Sermon 2. Okay? The church and black lives matter. And, and this, is, this one is going to be a touch longer than that short little sermon. Because whereas we can definitively say that God cares and affirms the, 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 the phrase that black lives matter, that the lives of the oppressed matter, that he stands with them, Sadly, we can't say it so easily about the church because the church, and especially the Church of England, which we're a part of here at Christchurch, has a long history with racism. A couple of stories to highlight this uh, history and then I'll speak about the modern church. So hopefully we'll get a slide up. This is Codrington College in Barbados. It's an Anglican uh, training college where priests are trained from around the Caribbean Uh, and has done for the last 300 years. Um, And both black and white people have been trained there to be priests and have been ordained uh, for a long, long time. It's a source of many positive things that have come out of that place for the kingdom of God. You know, the first black bishop in the Church of England, Wilfred Wood, was ordained there, uh, was trained there, sorry. But how was it maintained financially? Well, the college is named after its benefactor, Christopher Codrington, who gave the Anglican Church two slave plantations. The college was built on those plantations and continued to own slaves there well into the 1830s. About the same time that this building that we're stood into today was built, the Church of England was owning slaves. 
And on those plantations, conditions were so bad for those slaves that there were protests and uprisings and, and, uh, and that had to be suppressed. The plantations were actually owned by an Anglican mission agency who kind of managed it. They were called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, or SPG. And there is evidence to show that the, the slaves were branded with the word society on their chest so people would know who they belonged to. This was done in the name of church and in the name of mission. And I could say so much more about Codrington College, but obviously I don't have time. And I could give other examples of the church's history with the slave trade. But as we trace back the money in our churches, the money that paid for the building of our churches, the decorating of our churches, in Bristol especially, we are the inheritors of the colonial church. And there will always be those who cannot come into Church of England churches because of the pain that it reminds them of. So we move forward to something a bit more recent. You know, a lot of people that I've spoken to about my dissertation over the last couple of years or so uh, have said, well, you know, obviously the Church of England is mostly white because people of colour prefer to go to black churches, Pentecostal churches. Um, and that's a reasonable thought to have. That's, that's you know, certainly a case. But why is that? Why, how, where did the black Pentecostal church come from in this country? You know, the Anglican church is growing mostly in the global south, particularly in Africa. It's growing very, very rapidly there. And yet when people migrate to this country, they don't find a home and don't fit in our churches. And they look for a home outside of the Church of England. Well, where did those black churches start in the UK? For, for that, we have to go back about 70 years and the arrival of the Windrush generation, uh, as so-called. And these people were Christians. You know, research suggests that up to 70% regularly attended church on their home islands. But when they tried going to church in the UK, they were met with the same racism that they encountered in the rest of society. Many stopped going to church altogether, with research suggesting that in London, 94% of those who had gone to church in the Caribbean stopped going when they came to the UK. You know, more research interviewing pastors of black churches found that the vast majority had been started after people were rejected by white Anglican, Baptist, Methodist churches, and they became a safe space for people. Robert Beckford, who's one of the leading voices in British black and Pentecostal theology, wrote this. An opportunity was missed to welcome the stranger. In fact, where welcomes were warm and ministers sensitive, black people generally stayed put. They stayed in those churches. So, turning to the church today, I wish I could say that racism is a thing of the past, and not a problem we still face in our church. And I talk about our church institutionally and across the whole country, but also in our local congregations. There's a reason why I was able to quote uh, three black priests at the beginning of this uh, sermon. Each of them have written and spoken about the racism that they have experienced from people who are supposedly their brothers and sisters in Christ. Another person I'd like to introduce you to, this is Mary Hodgkiss. She is a curate in Bristol Diocese alongside me. And during her time training for ordination, despite growing up as someone who's a person of colour, of Indian heritage, she grew up in apartheid South Africa. 
She said this, until I started training in the Church of England, I had never been made so aware of my otherness and my ethnicity. That is a huge challenge. When she said that, that hit me hard. She'd never been, she grew up in apartheid South Africa, and she'd never been made so aware of her otherness, of her different race, until she joined the Church of England. Again and again, people of colour still come to churches, and instead, of, and instead of being made to feel welcome, they have been made so aware that they are different, that they are other. You know, whether it's Mary being told that obviously she'll get through the selection process because the Church of England wants vicars who look like her, or Dennis being put in every college or diocese photo to make the church look more diverse in magazines, or Darius being told and dismissed that he just has a chip on his shoulder when he's annoyed and speaks out against his church's silence about the black boy who'd been killed on the same road as his church building. Or one of the dozens and dozens of stories that are shared in Azariah's new book, Ghost Ship. People of colour, they are still being made to feel different, inferior and other in the Church of England. And just speaking about that book, if, you, if some of the stuff I'm talking about um, is kind of, you want to look in further, I cannot recommend highly enough Ghost Ship um, by ADA France Williams, that's Azariah there. It's ridiculously powerful and very, very uh, heartfelt. And it's very, very easy to read as well. It's not hard to read. I've spoken a lot about the ways in which the church has gotten things wrong, but how do we respond? And I just want to finish with this. How do we respond? Well, it's to this idea of the other. Because every church, every society in the whole world has an other. Someone or a group of people who are perhaps through their class their culture, their life experiences, their life circumstances, their race, their sexuality, disability, or gender, for whatever reason, they don't fit into the norm, and they are in some ways other and stand out from the rest of the group. The challenge is this, how do we treat the other? Now, I know many people here at Christchurch would fit into that other category for whatever reason, maybe perhaps through their race, and they would share stories about how they've been welcomed into our family, into our church family, and that's amazing. But there will also be times when we have to look at ourselves where we have uh, and confess that maybe we could do better, that I could do better to love the other. And Jesus told several stories about the other, and he gave lots of teachings about how to treat the other, although he generally used the word neighbour. Probably the most famous and the one I want us to think about as we finish is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I wanted to have it illustrated or show a cartoon uh, to you just to kind of, you know, so that we could engage with the story and just listen. Uh, But the one I found had the whitest Jesus I have ever seen ever. Uh, And maybe that's a story and a sermon for another day. Anyway, usually we read a passage and then someone speaks on this, but instead I just want to introduce the, introduce the characters in the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and then Joe is going to come and read it to us to finish. So we've got character one to listen out for. The expert in the law who asks Jesus the question and is the one Jesus is talking to. Someone for whom religion and following God would have felt very comfortable due to their position of authority and privilege. Character two is the traveller, given no name or status, 
just a man in need. Characters three and four are the priest and the Levite, who, might, who probably were really well-respected and good people, who might w- have wished they could help, but doing so would mean going out of their way, because if a priest or Levite got blood on their clothes, then they would be unclean and they couldn't do their jobs anymore. And the fifth and final character is the Samaritan, a person who would have experienced racial prejudice of his own. Who are we in this story? Who do we as a church most resemble most often? Joe, do you want to come up? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen.